This is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Turn it down that much. Hope you're having a good Friday. Uh, the Mensa brothers are going to join me momentarily. And we're going to talk about three things. The Biden press conference. Yep, that disaster. Honestly, unbelievable. To sit there and watch it, knowing the level of preparation, knowing that they they pre-selected the reporters, knowing that they know the major questions, and they're crafting answers so the world can hear the words of the President of the United States, and that's what you fucking saw. I mean, from a from a media management and information operations perspective, what in the fuck are they doing? Anyway, you'll get to hear. The Mensa brothers discussed that. We'll also talk about General Berger did an interview in, uh, that appeared in War on the Rocks. Did it with a guy named Ryan Evans. So we'll talk about that interview. Um, we've had a lot of, I had a lot of email saying, hey, did you see this? Did you hear this? What are your thoughts? Um, and then I'll, I pose a question for the geniuses. And that is this. The American military is pivoting to the Pacific. It is not where it needs to be to take on a pier. And I think we would all acknowledge that. So, in the elements of national power, the acronym DIME is used. Diplomatic, information, military, and economic. Why is there no grand economic overture to nations like the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and India. The last grand economic thing planned for the Pacific was President Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership. President Trump killed that. Don't like these big things. And then, subsequent to that, never negotiated a bilateral agreement. And so far in the first year President Biden has taken office, you haven't heard even a mention of it, which leaves me scratching my head. I don't get it. Because you would think in terms of national power, our military, you know, is, is, is attempting to pivot to the Pacific while we're in this diminished state something that we'd rather not be in, but we are. 
um, we need to exercise the other tools of national power in a big way. That would make sense to me, yes? Especially with nations like Vietnam, especially with the Philippines, especially with Malaysia. If the United States, if our military, so, so it starts with the economics, right, and the diplomatic. And then you have the military. And if we're in those nations, it completely changes the military equation in the South China Sea. But you don't hear anything. So I asked him about that. So without further ado, your friends, my friends, the Mensa brothers. Joining me right now from Southern California is Jeff Kenny. Jeff, how are you? Good, and I'm honored to be introduced first. Usually I'm not. I know. I'm like usually the last, and then we have our cleanup dude, Jeff Kenny, who's uh, in the slums of Oceanside. But he's... no, thank you. Yes, I'm doing good. No, good the, day. The Eastern or the Western White House? You're, you know, you're almost regal in in uh, the Western. I'm in the Western hovel right now. Oh, got it. <laughs> um, the middle child it really looks nice here too. Yeah, it it actually does. Um, the middle child, Tim Lynch, <laughs> in McAllen, Texas. Tim, how are you? I'm doing fine, Mac. How about yourself? I'm all right. I'm all right. Good. And then uh, uh, the world traveler, uh, Will Cosentini. And Will has uh, gone to New York and come home. And so, uh, Will, how was the trip? Uh, it was good. Um you know, didn't do much. Uh, stopped in Pittsburgh. Saw our good friend Ian Ferguson. Spend the night in a gin mill in Pittsburgh, which is always fun. And then uh, uh, six, seven days can't up beat in that. New York. Yeah. You know, it was cold and snowed almost every day up there. And then we threaded the needle on the way home. Left on Saturday morning at about 3.15 in the morning. It was snowing in New York. And apparently Kansas City had gotten about six inches on Friday night. So by the time I got home, it was all cleared up. So pretty well done. Although I got to tell you, you know, there's one postcard from Columbus to St. Louis. It's a brown cornfield. That's all there is for <laughs> like 800 miles. So, yeah. I want to talk about Ukraine. Uh, the president had a press conference today that I would describe as embarrassing to any notion of what the presidency of the United States is about. I'd be curious about your thoughts. Tim, you want to go first? And again, let me just, if you didn't see it, the president makes a statement, and I'll quote him. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we have to end up having to fight about what to do and what not to do, etc. But I expect him to go in. And he, go, he says, my guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And, and so just to frame Vladimir Putin's strategic position, anybody who's a history of that part of the world and has read a little bit about uh, the German advance into Russia and then the German exit from Russia will know the spring is a pretty dicey little event, as is the fall when the rains come. Right. And so um, he's got, you know, mobility season when the ground is frozen and he's got shit 
once it be, the thaw begins because that ground goes to marsh and and tanks and and armored personnel carriers and things like that they just know they'll get stuck they he'll lose his strategic mobility so he probably were in the middle of january he probably has what a window of about six weeks where you could launch something probably four to launch something and have it completed without being you know just losing your mobility to the russian to the spring thaw and whatnot so the president of the united states is going to go on television in his first solo press conference and i don't know when the last one he did and in my opinion i mean he so it's horrible the message I think he, he should have sent to the world was that this is not acceptable. We won't have it. We won't tolerate it. There's no reason for it. NATO's a defensive alliance, and every issue he has can be negotiated and taken care of without him doing this. And he should have put, he should have dumped all the charcoal uh, using the bully pulpit of the presidency of the United States onto Vladimir Putin's uh, lap, into Vladimir Putin's lap. Instead, I mean, I, I mean, watching it, it's it's stunning, and 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 it's like, and, and I guess the thing, and, and you guys make your own comments, but it's almost like he's musing about this. And and what I don't get is, you know, when you're going to do these kind of public events, you have specialists, subject matter experts, right? The national security guys, and and you know, everybody's, you know, guy comes in, and we're going to talk about okay, this these are the questions we think you're going to get asked about foreign policy. If you don't get asked them, just slew to these answers. And boom, here's the answers. These are the major things. But when you watch him answer this question, it's almost like he's musing about it, right? And he's like kind of crafting an answer for you, which is stunning to me, which is stunning. I I just thought it was very disappointing. And I mean, frankly, I thought it was awful. So, um, uh, Timmy, your thoughts? Well, you know, I I said when he was elected that it's going to be very amusing to watch the kind of stuff that he pulls. And I want to take that back. This isn't amusing. To give him the benefit of the doubt, I could see where he was trying to parse the difference between a minor violation as opposed to a a blitzkrieg across the thing. But that kind of amusing is not appropriate at, at his level. And I believe what happened with Joe Biden is... For all his life, I don't believe he's ever been able to stick on message and be controlled and be disciplined enough to not start shooting off the cuff like he knows what he's talking about. I think in his mind, he's comparing himself to Trump, who may not have known what he was talking about, but it damn sure sounded like it did. At least he was confident about it. I don't know if the comparison is in his mind or not, but but whatever he was once capable of, he's significantly diminished and i don't know why they thought it was a good idea to give him such a long time for him to just sit out there and do the gaffmatic thing but this this is a serious situation but 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 we don't have a we 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 don't we're not we're not presenting ourselves as being a serious part of any solution we're we're presenting ourselves as being a little bit incompetent and it's and it's distressing and it's not as amusing as I thought it would be. It's it's because I was always confident in T.R. Fahrenbach's immortal words. The country has grown so great. Fools can't destroy it. But I'm beginning to doubt that. And and it's not it's alarming. Jeff, said, <clears throat> Jeff your thoughts. Yeah. I have to tell you, my gut is telling me that uh, 
our president is compromised by the Russian government and possibly also the Chinese government. And uh, and so consequently, he gives this flaccid, uh, you know, response to this thing. Um, if, if and now I do believe that Putin will make moves in the Ukraine because what's to stop him? You know, what's to stop him? Nothing. And uh, and so uh, the only thing that would stop him is the Ukrainians themselves, you know, who uh, put up a determined defense that he doesn't want to lose people or lose face by not having an overwhelming success right away. But I feel that, uh, you know, our president is uh, his history financially. There's all kind of dirt there. And I, th- I, I think he's afraid to uh, really air the, you know, to air it out because the dirty laundry will come out. And I think it will come out anyway. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't like to make statements without concrete evidence, but uh, that's, that's what I believe. I believe it. My gut tells me that. But, well, unlike the Russian, the Russian thing with, with Trump, there is concrete evidence of exactly what you're talking about, which makes it even more unfortunate. Thank you, Jimmy. Will, how about you? Your thought? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 the discussion that he's having in the press conference is like a discussion that you would have in the principal's meeting. So they sit in the situation room, him, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman, Secretary of State, CIA, all that crowd, and they try and think through uh, what's our response going to be to various potential provocations. What would a minor incursion be? What would a cyber attack be, which happened last week, right. uh, et cetera? But you, you do that to go through to develop policy and response that you want to keep opaque uh, to the other side. And instead, he sort of lays it out there. Uh, and how do you walk it back? Exactly. You know, when he and then when he talks about, well, you know, he shouldn't do it because they take a lot of casualties. Really? I mean, you're telling <laughs> Vladimir Putin about that. Um, yeah. And then he. He tries to tries to to round the whole thing up and saying, "Well, he's never going to see the economic sanctions like we would apply to him." Um, but I got to tell you, I'd I'd be interested to see how far we can go. Um, you know, the basically the world petroleum market is is denominated in dollars. Um, to buy petroleum on the international market, you pay dollars. And so if the U.S. makes it somehow illegal, i.e. sanctions, to do business with Russia in dollars, then how do all those Europeans pay for all their gas? Are they going to they're going to go somewhere to buy rubles Um euro to ruble to, it just and i don't know enough to know how all that would work uh, i think sanctions could do a lot it wouldn't be insignificant but i think there's a lot of collateral damage to that potentially amongst our allies and uh, i'm waiting you know to see what will be in the wall street journal and places like that uh, over the next couple of weeks uh if anything does happen and sanctions go in uh, to see uh, how much we're going to be able to hold to that. I mean, Russia is irrelevant to us as a trading partner, but it's not irrelevant to a whole lot of people in Western Europe. And so 
things get pretty complicated there with the allies. Let's let's walk that dog, and and I just so Russia's major export is is uh, is petroleum, oil, and that's, oil, oil and, and gas. gas, oil yeah. and gas. That's okay. really the only thing. So if yeah. it's if it's embargoed, let's just say the West says, "Hey, we're not we're not having it anymore." China steps in, right, and 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 essentially, you know, if that's if that's China steps in and China buys it. So I mean, Russia exists in its isolated state because it it's only selling gas and and oil, and they still have their they'll still run their economy because they're not fully integrated. Now the big question is, you know, what happens in Western Europe? And yeah, and and, it, and China really can't step in and buy it all because Russia exports by pipeline, and the pipelines run. And and that's a good point. Didn't Russia? Didn't President Biden uh, greenlight Russia's pipeline into West Germany or into well Germany now? Well, didn't he just North, do that? I mean, do that as soon as he as, as he as he as he got rid of our pipeline. Yeah. So the Nord Stream two. I don't know if it's running yet, but he did that. Yeah, the Nord Stream two is not online, but there are a lot of other Russian pipelines that run. Right. I think they're trying to build one to China, um, but. Right. It, there's no way it got the capacity, and it doesn't go from everywhere Russia is producing. Right, and so my point is though, he already showed fealty to uh, Russia, will by uh, by approving that pipeline almost simultaneously when he when he destroyed our pipeline, or not destroyed, but uh, you know disavowed the pipeline, uh, the uh, pipeline from Canada for us, you know, and um, yeah, basically making sure. You know, destroying our ener energy independence and in doing that, and so that pipeline's not running yet, is what you're saying. I've heard that before too. Yeah, but all the other pipelines still do run to Western Europe, and so the idea right. that we could, you know, we could embargo Russian oil and gas and put our allies on the spot, either you become illegal in the eyes of the United States government, or you freeze to death. Right. Remember when, when, choice. when Trump was talking about this, he was telling Europe, we'll give you all the natural gas you want. We'll give it to you for a discount. We'll make a deal. Because we were producing natural gas at the cyclic rate, which we cannot do now. Right. Because of all the closing of the different, different federal leases. Only in Texas can you get natural gas now. So that's another dynamic. Back back when we were pumping out natural gas, when we were exporting energy, the prices had plummeted. So Russia was being hurt. That's a that's war by another means. The economic component. We were killing Russia with our with our cheap uh, our cheap and quality natural gas. Well, but now we can't because of uh, reasons. But, but <clears throat> to me, they'll find they'll find markets for their oil. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. Right. It, it, even if they got to put it on tankers. Right. It's not. But but. I mean, got, again, it, it's it's, it's it. It, it'll cost them more. But but they'll find they'll find they'll find markets for it. I again, so um, the economic sanctions against a nation that not so much economically other than natural resources um, is you know is problematic, and then. And then the question is, as the Chinese look at this, this is this is Western resolve and American resolve over something they don't believe is in their strategic interest. So, 
why wouldn't we move on Taiwan as soon as we could? They will be as interested yeah, in Taiwan as they are in this. They won't shed their blood for it. That's what, I think the only, that's, the that's only... what they've showed us. I, again, I, and again, so to me, this lack of a, a concerted front, this lack of singularity of purpose, um, to me, is, is bodes well as both Russia and China flex their muscles and begin to say, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't think you have it to push back anymore. So we'll do what we want because you don't give a shit about these things. The, the only, the only yeah, I agree, thing I agree with you. On that the man. only thing that stops them is the fear of excessive casualties. Like I said last week when I was looking at those Ukrainian volunteers with all their nice kit rotating up and down those fronts, those are deep fronts. Those people know what they're doing. I don't think Putin can come across there as easily as you would think unless he right. does that tire-to-tire -tire artillery bombardment thing. And I don't think that's going to play well in the world today. It's the same thing with China. They cannot afford to get a foothold in Taiwan and then get their asses kicked. They can't afford it. Grant thinks it ain't that easy for him to walk through that island. It, it, and it may not be. I, I don't know. But but that's the only thing holding them up. We've got nothing. To, uh, uh, we're contributing towards the, the positive side of the decision-making matrix for them because we are now in, clearly in a, in, a, in a state where our forces are in decline and our morale's a little shaken and questionable. Because we don't know what the hell we believe in anymore, at a national level. So let me ask you. So, so he's got a window of about four weeks to to go, and then conduct the operations before the thaw begins to set in and affect his mobility. So, in at some point, if he's going to go in the next four weeks, um, that's when you'll see him go. Because cool. after that, it, it that part of the world becomes very difficult. And the Ukraine, and, and, and actually the Ukrainians, I won't say would have an advantage, but the playing field gets a little bit more level if the only thing you can come down is those roads. And, uh, you know, they fought in that neck of the woods before. So um, so in terms of our ops intel, in terms of operations, window, he's got a window, and, and that's what drives the window is his mobility, his tactical mobility um, on, that, on those battlefields. And, and I would say his window is two years and four months, were it not for the fact that this last summer he had all those military exercises where he had uh, uh, many, many divisions wait, wait, up what on do you the mean, border. What do you mean two years and four months? What because of the about? Biden administration. In other words, he could— cause Well, of, I'm, I'm, cause just ta I'm talking about in the short term, Timmy. Yeah, I, and all I'm doing was buttressing your point by pointing out that all that equipment that was part of those exercises never left the border. The troops went back home. The equipment stayed. So he's got a lot of equipment staged there, was my only point, from last summer. And he can't leave it there for indefinitely. Okay. All right. Any other final quotes, whether they be operational or um, otherwise, on Ukraine? Well, I, uh, I watched the news. I heard uh, General Kellogg, who I respect, is he's usually never wrong, this guy. Worked for President Trump, uh, you know, as uh, in the National Security Agency. And uh, he really thinks... Putin's going to go for it during the winter, like you said, Mac. While he's got this window, he's going to go for something, you know. And uh, so, I don't want to go against that guy. He's got—he's always <laughs> been right, you know what I mean. So, uh, and and I really don't know that much about it, you know what I mean. It's, uh, I feel like uh, he might—he might. He might uh, the other thing he might do is like get a little bit, and then um, 
And then when the weather's like before the Resputza, as they call, like you were talking about the rains of uh, of October, you know, back in, you know in the future in August, he makes a big push. But um, it, I don't know how much uh, the people in Russia think it's a great idea to grab Ukraine. I mean, because pretty much that would be only for only for uh, you know for local consumption, wouldn't it? That type of uh, coup to invade another country for him. I mean, it's not impressing anybody else. It's only for the Russian people. I mean, I don't know how much how how sanguine they are about um, fighting their ass off in Ukraine. You know. Well, I but, think that'll be an interesting question. You know, if they do have to fight, right. if the body can't, if the Ukrainian people say, "Hey, look, we've been free. You know, there's a generation mm-hmm. of us that have been free. We're not going back to those days, right? And we're not having this, and we'll fight, right. and we're not afraid to fight." And so if that happens, then the next question is, if that's happening there, do you see other parts of Russia and the satellites begin to say, hey, fuck this. We're with them. We're tired of this shit. So, again, I think there's an element of the unknown, you know, for Vladimir Putin. Once he lights this off, you know, the law of unintended consequences. The other question I have about about NATO, you know, there's no way— with somebody occupying a piece of Ukraine, Ukraine can't join, um, right? You can't, Ukraine couldn't join uh, NATO because that would immediately trip, what is it, Article 6, right? And so, yeah, and so there's, I mean, until this whole thing, and I would venture, I again, I'm not any Russian expert or anything, but Putin's no fool, he probably has read those charters and and knows them as well as anybody and knows that that, that if if they're uh, right. if he has Russian troops there, that would trigger Article six and so they would never allow them into NATO as long as he's there. And so again, he's I mean, he's a chess player, but the whole again, those two things um are just little data points. And Jeff, you were gonna make a point. No, no, I- I was just saying you're right. Uh, the, uh, you know, well, I was going to say something about Tajikistan because I've been looking at it a lot because uh, it's really the only place. You, the reason I was looking at it is because the only place you can get people in or out of Afghanistan without dealing with the Pakistanis and stuff, you know, or the Iranians. And so um, I, I know there's uh, they mobilized like 14,000 people down there on the border with Afghanistan and they're having issues with the Russians because the Russians are kind of friendly to the new Taliban government. But uh, I don't have any other specifics other than the, that general report I got on the news, you know? Got it. Got it. All right. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is the Commandant did a uh, did an interview in, in War on the Rocks. Um, I got a bunch of email about it and uh, people asking that, you know, we take a look at it. So um, to me, um, anything in the interview either surprise you or break squelch for you? It seemed to me that he was getting pressed with some hard questions about the exact topics we were we've been discussing, and he would go around and basically give a long explanation that basically agreed with the question. Yes, this is going to be a problem, and and talk about a few other things without saying much. And and so once again, the nervousness within the retired community, as as the commandant and the interviewer. We're talking about it. Um, 
has to do with we haven't heard any specifics. We hear a lot of gibberish. All of us can agree that the manpower system and the acquisition systems and all these things should be combined and streamlined. All of us understand that part, and we get that that part's going to take contractors and tech people to get. Nobody's got bitching about that. Nobody's, and I'm not necessarily bitching about this controlling your destiny, although how the hell are you going to get anybody out of Camp Pendleton ever? You, you'll never, will never get anybody in, in, in Lejeune, but the, they'll figure that shit out, right? But the, on the substantive pieces of what the hell it is a Marine Corps is going to be, we get a lot of these little evasive answers about the need for older guys and distributed ops and first and second echelons. And it's and it's it's distressing to me because even the commandant in that interview admits that every time we try to guess what the next war is, we're wrong. But then it just continues blithely down the road he's on. And I don't understand it. And there was nothing in that interview that cleared up anything about what's going on with this force design thing. It's I, I will I will adamantly insist it's a bad idea on its face. But that's what I that's all that's the that's all I could make out of that interview. It was it was to me annoying to read, quite frankly. Got it. Well. Uh, yeah, big picture. I, I agree with Tim in that there was just there was not a lot of clarity. If anything, it tended to to sort of agree with some of the critics, but not really do anything. Two things in particular stuck out to me. One, they talked about as we're transitioning, you know, this idea of readiness. And I don't have it in front of me, but the commandant said, where's the effect of, you know, we've tried the thing where everyone tries to be ready. That doesn't really work because you can't maintain it. And then we tried the thing before Korea where no one was really ready. And that didn't work either. Well, that's the whole point of the Marine Corps. We are the force that's most ready when the rest of the country was least ready. And that's our niche capability. And um, if we're part of the force that's not ready right now because we're transitioning, then who is? So that's number one. The second one... Um, they got into the diversity discussion. And the interviewer said, it's fair to say the Marine Corps is slower than the other services at addressing diversity. And I would like to tell that guy a hearty fuck you. Uh, I don't know that it's fair to say that at all. Uh, and interestingly, the commandant didn't say that. And then the commandant went on to talk about you know, we have this melting pot in the United States. Um, and you see it when you compare it to other places around the world where they don't have that. And we have this melting pot and it helps us, you know, to get to better decisions. So it's interesting to me. If we have this melting pot and we're actually better than the rest of the world. What's the problem? We want to be better than we're better. I think there's other things we can work on. The other part of it is, he says, you know, and, it, and this is where he just sort of obfuscates a little bit. He talks about, well, when the chips are down, people are counting minorities and females. And that's not what it is to me. Um, so basically what he should say is. We believe in getting a wide variety of people into the military that have a, a wide uh, experience and background. 
They come from different parts of the country, different parts of the social strata. Well, you know, that's what we do. That's why we have recruiters all over the United States. We actually have the most diverse officer corps at entry level than any of the other services. By diverse, I mean commissioning source. We have service academy, ROTC. We have people that never touch the Marine Corps till they go to OCS. We have a higher percentage of prior enlisted officers, et cetera. We are, we have all the great attributes that you look for in diversity. And then if you want to be a bean counter and go right down to race, I mean, Mac, you've pulled the numbers on this. And it's interesting to me that the commandant just can't stand up and push back on people that the only thing they're looking at is that our racial minority construct does not match the population of the United States and why he can't stand up and just say that is completely irrelevant to what we're trying to do here. I don't know. Uh, but he allows people to frame the argument and then he, he very without clear decisive statements just starts gibber jabbering uh, about this and you know, sort of unfortunate. So as Tim said, the whole article, the whole interview was just, I don't know where the there was, but I couldn't find the there there. Uh, and I think a couple of points, um, he actually argued against what he's trying to do in readiness and in diversity. Hmm. And to me, it's a little bit frustrating when you, when you read the, 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 the transcript and you wonder if the, interviewer has has read any of the background data to ask a follow-up question right to have an informed discussion about the topic and and to me you don't have to dig very far into um marine corps ethnic racial data to see what sticks out and where the and where and where the where the problem is, and 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 to get to the footnotes on that, which is to me what you should do. And it's just frustrating when the commandant trots that stuff out that you know he does he doesn't get well. So let me let me get into the weeds with you, okay? This is this is this and this is this. And so I mean, as somebody who interviews people, I, it just to me is frustrating. It's like, hey, do some homework, ask him a hard question. You know, and, and and I just I don't right. I don't like these interviews that are essentially softball interviews, accept the answer with no fault with with no reengagement to get to the footnotes, and I, I find them right. empty. Jeff, yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And that interviewer actually uh, kind of like was more than General Berger did. In some cases, he's saying, you know, the Marine Corps has been the slowest on diversity. He'd start out a question like that, and the question would be longer than General Berger's answer was. I don't know if you guys noticed that. And uh, the other thing, um, you know, General Berger uh, referenced all the way back to General Conway, saying that they're all working on this thing. as It was some kind of cabal, you know, back from 2000, uh, <laughs> you know, t- 2009, where they're all working to, to get rid of tanks in the Marine Corps, and he's just the guy who had to pull the trigger on it. And uh, I, I found that not credible, you know, and uh, I, I didn't think that uh, 
he, I do believe what he said about General Neller, you know, about how they were in on this thing and they believe, I, I, I think it's uh, ill-conceived, you know, the thing that they believe in. And, and a lot of it is because of what Timmy says, it's ill-conceived because it's not clearly defined. I mean, okay, we know what you got rid of, but what's the point? You know, what's the point? What happens if your, your Marine Corps design for 2030 runs into an enemy in 2023? Then what happens? You know, I mean, we don't have tanks. We don't have weapons that we had before. We have all this baloney, uh, you know, crew serve weapons in, in arms rooms and stuff like that, meaning that the troops treat them like toys, you know, and uh, they're not they're not serious about uh, our business you know our business you know the infantry business you know at the uh, tactical level and so um i was disheartened by by this interview because it didn't clear up anything and i, I still get the impression we're being shined on remember that that expression we used to i'm shining him on it's like the arabs version of that is shway we shway shway you know and we're being shined on with this stuff it's like hey don't worry about it i got it well i mean that's like a microcosm of what we got from our present administration. Oh, we got it. But then when you look at it a little bit and you look at the results, well, you really don't have it. You know, there's there's issues, there's questions, and there's people who have experience who are asking these questions, and they and they expect, you know, um, relevant answers to them. You know, that that match the questions. So that's what I'm just saying. Yeah, I um, I I just make maybe two quick points uh the first it's on and on some it's on the first page of the transcript quote i'd like to start by hearing your vision for all these changes that are enacted in your talent management strategy for future force how is the marine corps you're trying to realize by 2030 different from the marine corps today and then in the second sentence general berger says i think it's not a radical departure from today and you read that, and if you've read about it, you know, it's like the car just went off the road and in the ditch. Like, what are you talking about? And again, you're waiting for Ryan Evans to yeah. say, hey, sir, let me, it's not a radical departure from today. The force today operates across the range of military operations. The force you're talking about does not. You know, we've seen people say, well, right. if this, if this kind of conflict occurs, what does the Marine Corps do? And the answer is, Marine Corps is not involved in that conflict. And so, I mean, from the Alumni Association, some of the greatest heartburn is force and readiness operating across the range of military operations, Marine Corps, most bang for the buck, and we can tilt ourselves to the South China Sea. We can do all of that, right? And, and so, but you read that, it's not a radical departure from today. So not operating across the range of military operations, changing the labor model is a huge endeavor, right? Oh, he's going to break recruiting. Well, break recruiting. Right. And so, and so, but again, I think it's, I think it's not a radical departure from today. Okay. Um, And then a sentence later he says, uh, wait, but it is a force that has the maturity, the judgment, the experience, the experience matches what we think they're going to have to do. And by that, I mean, if you assume that we're going to need to operate more more distributed, more spread out, and that presumes that the more junior leaders are making decisions that were a level or two up previously. Now, my question is this. 
who believes that that's actually going to, going to be allowed? Are we training to that in our large-scale exercise? Are, are platoon commanders launching, right, and approving fire missions that shoot precious munitions a long ways and destroy a lot of things? Is that what we're doing? Are we, no, it, no, Mac, you're not, you're not understanding the, the issue here because Colonel Kansian explained it all. We're going to need very mature men because they're going to be back in the rear guarding fucking ammo dumps and stuff like that. And so they're going to make decisions like two levels up. Do we get hot chow or do we get a, a, a do we do we get kimchi today? And 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 this is the kind of this is important. Don't laugh, damn it. But this, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being obviously a, a jerk. But but when Colonel Kansian said, what do you do with the Marine Corps with no tanks and all these no cruiser weapons? You put them in the rear to guard stuff. That that was it's horrible to hear from a guy that does war gaming at the at the service level for a goddamn living. You know what I mean? That's not yeah. cool. That's where we are right now. And that's yeah, a, a I would say, Mac, you know, it, it, b- before we go to the force design, we, we've got to have the hard conversation about what are the lessons learned at 20 years of war? There you go. Right? I was I was only there and in charge for seven months. I got to tell you, my risk calculus was pretty damn narrow. And I like to think that for a short period of time, I was a student, you know, of the military art and understood the idea of risk, gain, et cetera. Uh, but my risk calculus was pretty damn tight. Um, is the commandant thinking, and, and I don't think I was out of the mainstream of battalion commanders at that time. We typically did not put small units all alone and unafraid out there. Um, And so, and and for a lot of reasons, right? Human life, Marines' lives are precious and should be very carefully calculated uh, when we're going to put them at risk. I got a feeling there's a generation, generation and a half of officers um, that probably calculate pretty close to that. What the commandant is talking about is a significant departure from that, where we are going to be constantly in high-risk situations, constantly. And that is going to be the norm. Um, I don't – look, fundamentally, I don't believe it. And then the second part of it is just the logistics of it. God damn, if there's one thing we should have learned in 20 years is how important logistics is. Basic food, water, medical care, right? The golden hour. Are we going to start putting people outside the golden hour? It sounds, like, sounds like you have, the time. To. There is, well, you have to. There is no, yeah, there is no golden, golden hour day. anymore. There is no golden yeah. hour anymore. It doesn't exist. And so let's let's have that discussion. What did we learn? Did we learn the wrong lessons? Let's fundamentally get into our doctrine and then build the force and make sure we're all on board with that doctrine first. I don't, we may be able to get on board with it. I'm not sure National Command Authority and the American people would be on board with it. But, you know, what do I know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I so when, when I looked at it, um, I hear those things and that's, those are things we don't. Those, those. Are, that's a completely different force, not not a slightly different force, and um, and it's not the way we've ever fought. 
I mean, I will tell you, when I, I was in Afghanistan 2010, 2011, uh, when Timmy, I saw, you know, I saw Timmy bounce around over there. And <laughs> um, in order to do, to insert a squad, you had to submit the squad con up to meth ops. Think about that. In order to insert a squad, right, you had to, you know, and their, their rationale was, oh, because it involves aviation. That's why we need the squad con up. Right. And they, I mean, you right. talk about the ability to, to see into the op, to look into the chat windows, right. the 8,000-foot screwdriver. That's the way things got more and more centralized. And now we take this wand and then we, we kind of, we, we fairy dust this thing and say, oh, this is the way we're going to do it. Well, where are we actually practicing that? Are we, is that how, um, whatever we're doing out in the desert, are our, our captains launching, you know, high Mars on, without anybody else clearing the mission? When they say fire, it fires. Is that how we're doing it now? Is that, do they have that kind of initiative and relative to movement, right? You light off antennas, you, right. get, you get killed. Okay, so are, is, right. is where are we practicing? Is that the way we're doing it? And it is a, it is a night and day change from the way the Marine Corps ha had evolved throughout Iraq and Afghanistan that I saw, and I and I saw the operation side of it. So, like, I, well, I wouldn't use the term expert. Right. I I I paid a lot of fucking attention to that shit. Uh, you should use the term expert. You should. No, yeah, yeah you certainly raised Here's something else. But, I'll tell you what, I. I'm like with Will. I believe what Will said about I don't. He doesn't believe it. I don't believe it either. And I'll tell you why. This guy, because of the AAV accident, got rid of probably the best do the best colonel we had in the Marine Corps. The hope for the future. Arbitrarily, shit canned uh, Colonel Bronzy, and that should never have happened. And and the whole reason was he's trying to feed some bear that may may or may not exist. So the idea that he's gonna He's going to accept the risk of all these guys doing uh, the type of things that Will laid out. It's not, I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. You know, I just don't. Well, the, the one thing that's interesting is for you, Mac, where you guys were, unlike where Will was in Iraq, you guys had little squad outposts all over the whole goddamn green belt. But they were mutually supported. They, they, it wasn't like you could go tangle with one and not get four or five just bounding in on you because they were they were pretty close to each other. But you guys were doing that so you could say we operated in a distributed manner. But what was the controls at the battalion level? Those guys had that the, was very tightly controlled, choreographed at the battalion level. So yeah, we and, you and, could call and that the, and Let me tell you this. But you, that's you that's didn't not the same. you didn't put them out there unless you could use the, like the G boss camera system to, yeah. to, to look at the area around right. them. The, yeah. dr the oh, drone yeah. support, all the things it took. It was to, more like half of a company at a time. Right, and they would yeah. and they would rotate and, and you half a company at a time. Yeah, and you would right. and you would go ahead and you know the whole the, the medevac piece, the logistic piece, all of that. I mean, it's as, as Will said, you're going to dangle somebody's ass out there like that, and we just talk about it like, oh yeah, distributed ops, you know, these guys on the ships, and then, you know, and 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 again, there's so many questions to yeah. it. I, again, I just think it would be really interesting for the commandant to sit down, and I don't think he'd do it because he's not that kind of guy. Like, I don't think the commandant would would have come to a mucus meeting. 
I don't, yeah, he probably would have, probably would not have found it very appropriate. No, I don't think he would have. Like yeah, he, given, he he would have crossed paths with Will once, and he had said, "Yeah, that, those those guys, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there." Um, but again, he's 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 a different guy. He's, he's a really smart guy, but he's lost the alumni because of this, right? Because they ask these, they know better than we, and they ask these hard questions. And so that's the interview I want him to do is I want to see him sit down with somebody who knows and can ask these questions and get the hard answers. And so yeah, there's there's a book out there called Finding the Target. I think it's 10 years old and it's really about the development of the military and, and the the idea of um, all encompassing intelligence. So the, the name Finding the Target. And that's what the U.S. military was driving towards in sort of the Rumsfeld transformation, that we're going to have all-knowing intelligence, so we'll be able to find and address the target. And if you think about it, it's unbelievably arrogant. Um, but I have a sense that part of this is going, going that same direction. We are going to know so well what everyone else is doing, we're going to be able to move our little chess pieces. And... Uh, Again, if there's a lesson learned from the last 20 years, you can throw all kinds of technology, everything else out there. And you know what? The enemy still gets a vote. The warfare is unknown. And uh, if you have that confidence that you can put people out there relatively unsupported, um, there's a certain arrogance to that, that, that we should know better. I mean, and, history and, and is the other thing is, oh, by the way, it didn't work very well. Because you know what? They didn't get the memo that our technological superiority means that we should win. They said, fuck that memo. We'll come back. We've got no problem. Jeff, you were going to make a comment. Jeffrey? I think he's frozen. Oh, I thought he was dead. <laughs> no, I think he's, I, I thought he's it, frozen. It finally fucking happened. Hey, I'll make a comment until he unfreezes. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, would, I, I just wanted to say that the best news in the world would be two years from now, we're sitting here eating crow, and, and, and General Berger has demonstrated the reason why he's very, very smart and forward-thinking, and, uh, and, and, and we have to say, damn, we didn't see it, but, but he's, he's right after all. But, but, but the again, let me, that tell that's, let me tell you why that, that's not going to happen. It's not. It it's, can't happen because we would know by now well, whether he had. Again, if if he was on terra firma, the alumni would be with him. There you go. Right? Because, again, right. they know the things that we don't know and understand right. that thing. And, again, and so that's the interview I want to see him do. Yeah. No, I, I am. If General Conway came out and said, yeah, I'm all for this, I, I would I would have to give it serious consideration. Not not, not one that argue with, with General Conway lately, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I don't know what where Jeff is. Um, yeah, I think he's he's frozen. Can can we hang up on him? Remove from the call. Does that can he come back if I remove him from the call? Yeah, all he's got to do is just get back on Skype, and he will say join the call. I think. I hope yeah. you're. I hope you're right. Yeah. Jeff Kenny left. All right. Um, here's the other. This is kind of an open question I have for both of you guys because you're, you know, Tim grew up in Annapolis, which is pretty close to D.C. And then uh, Will, being a Naval Academy graduate, he is our, he's the smart guy. 
just smart in a different way. Um, when you look at the elements of national power, the acronym is DIME, all right? just in case you don't know. Um, I just found that out, by the way. Um, I didn't know exactly what all of them were, but I know one's economics, right? If you were to assess... That's the E. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I told you Will I told you Will was smart. The um if if you did an assessment in the United States and, and where it is today militarily, uh, as it pivots to the Pacific, I think your assessment, if it was honest, would say after twenty years of, of war in the Middle East, the United States military is hobbled by legacy systems um and has not kept up in terms of investing and being ready to fight a peer. Um, and China is that. It will take them, you know, probably close to 10 years to get this thing where they want it, if they're successful. In that 10-year period, it is absolutely imperative, right, while we're in this situation, that our economic overtures to people in our strategic orbit that are vitally important to the nation become extremely robust. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was killed by President Trump, and he said he liked bilateral agreements. The Trump administration never initiated bilateral uh, agreements um, with, and again, I'm talking about principally at the top of the list, right, Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, you know, the Philippines, America in the Philippines changes the equation of, of, of the whole thing. Um, Malaysia, India, you know, those those four at the top of the list. Um, there's been no bilateral trade agreements that have brought them closer to our sphere. Uh, in talking with Grant, all these nations that dot the Pacific, that China is now making overtures, investing in and whatnot, the United States has been invited into four of them and has said no. And so my question to you is, why? Why aren't we playing an element of national power where you can see, I mean, like as our military, you know, transitions, we have to have strong diplomatic, you know, and strong, not diplomatic, strong economic agreements and pull them into the GDP of the G7 is four times out of China. And if we pull Vietnam, why, why not build it in Vietnam? Why not incentivize Vietnam? Why not incentivize the, the Philippines? You know, Americans in the Philippines changed the equation of the South China Sea. But we're not in there. I don't know where we think we're going to go. And it's just so, it's just extremely puzzling to me um, why we haven't done this. I asked this to Grant, and I'll ask you guys. You guys are smart. You're well-read. You guys have followed the, the Pacific. Why? Um, Timmy, any idea why? It, it, it seems to me that there's not very many people within the national decision-making apparatus who have an incentive to take the long view. You ask why we're not engaging in these various countries along, uh, 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 located within the uh, South China Sea and then the outer rings and the marshals and the admirals and et cetera, et cetera. It's because these are poor places in which we would abstract nothing of economic worth. It would be something where we would have to put money in to sustain the relationship, which would be valuable only years down the road 
if we get ourselves involved in a conflict in the area. So spending now to buy insurance for something down the road when we may not or may not need these islands, I think it's that level of horse trading that's going on. And and to, I mean to be a smart ass, can any of those guys bribe 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 somebody's kid? I mean it's it almost is is that goddamn bad because all the countries that we don't want to get of a lot of attention or, or do a lot of business with, we're doing a lot of business with, namely China, which we ought not to be so heavily involved with so that our entire pharmaceutical uh, industry depends on precursors produced in fucking China. I mean, it's crazy that how, how, how much we're still intertwined with China. It's slowly unraveling. There's more and more business being done in Vietnam and Cambodia and places like that, I know. But that's being done by individual businessmen. It's not being done at the behest of any type of organized application of power by the part of the United States. So our long-term planning is shit planning. And, 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 and it's because nobody in that system seems incentivized to even look at it long-term. Because four years later, they're going to be somewhere else, making big bucks doing something else. And, and I, I hate to sound so negative, but I, I don't see it. Yeah. I, I, that's just the way I see it. Well, thoughts, national power, economics. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Who The, the people that are at the top of the pyramid uh, economically in the United States do not see China as a, comp- as a competitor, right. pure and simple. Um, you know, this is not okay. the Cold War, Soviet Union versus U.S., uh, where they, you know, we could close them out of our system. We open some things up, detente, yada, yada, yada. Um but now we're very intertwined, uh, and as much as we would like to think that some industry is going to other places, particularly in Asia, I think a lot of that is China is pushing that low-value-add industry down, right? The touch labor, you know, people that are sewing buttons on shirts, uh, they're happy to see Vietnam do that as they try and go up the economic ladder into producing computer chips instead of potato chips, um, but our, you know, the economic powers that be in this country, Silicon Valley and Wall Street, do not see China as competition, right? They see it as cooperation. They are apologists, China. I mean, I, I don't know if you caught the the guy who's a minority owner. Yes, in, I did. Uh, Warriors. And, uh, yes, so, I know, did. No one, no one cares about the Uyghurs. Cares about the Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. Nobody cares about that. That's you know that's not what where they're at. And uh, uh, so that's one of the reasons. The second reason is uh, while we are the biggest economy on the planet, still um, our economy is no one knows where it is right now. We've never been in this kind of a situation. Where uh, we're thirty trillion dollars in debt, we don't dare raise interest rates to try and stave off inflation, because I think every percentage point interest rate is about six hundred billion dollars in interest payments that the government would have to make if they sold bonds at another point higher. So we can't afford to raise rates that much, or we either got to give up Social Security or the military, one or the other. Um, and so, you know, the other elements of national power, 
the D diplomacy. <laughs> I mean, the press conference today showed we're knocking, knocking it out of the park on that one. And then the other one's intelligence. <laughs> where are we in intelligence? Our intelligence agencies, where are they focused? <laughs> A certain amount of them are focused on the hundred people in the U.S. military that are considered violent extremists. I mean, um, we're still the greatest country on earth, but God damn, we're really trying to fuck this up, aren't we? Yeah. It, to me, this is like, this is so obvious when I, you know, I, I, got, I was getting ready to interview Grant the other day and when, um, when this question just popped into my mind, you know, and, and so, you know, to talk about national power and the elements of national power and, you know, we have cards to play, you know, and again, the Philippines, the Philippines just bought 32 Blackhawk helicopters from us. They bought um, surface to ship missiles from India. Right. Okay. So, where's the sweetheart deal for the Philippines? Why not build phones in the Philippines? Right. Why? Why don't? We, why don't? Why doesn't the United States incentivize that? You know. And the same thing with those kind of uh, those kind of businesses into Vietnam. And and so you're. So this would be what war by other means with China. Yeah, but again, the the, the people. No, I, yeah, there, that's a know. great point, Will. I mean, honestly, that's. You know, it's that, that the, those people, if you want to see the people that are funding election campaigns, are going to look at you and say, you need to back the fuck off that. Yeah, and I, I would tell you, you know, I have tried to not buy things from China probably in the last couple of three years. Right. It's hard. Mm. It's hard <laughs> to not buy something from China. What percentage of the products in like... Target, Walmart, and Home Depot are from China. What do you think? All the medications are from China. All the medications. All the, I would yeah, say, electronics, all that stuff. Groceries out of Walmart and all yeah. that other stuff on the shelf. I think you're pushing 75. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, with the cheap sandals coming out of Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, your survey, just go down the shelf sometimes. I mean... It's really hard to not buy stuff from China now. So, Jeff, your thoughts? Um, do you agree with Will? Do you think it's? Well, do you I think it's? Be- I, I think Will's thesis is 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 probably the most sound one I've heard. Wall Street and Silicon Valley are adamantly opposed to us taking a more combative approach economically with China, and. The money they throw yeah. around in, in, in political campaigns uh, pays off someplace. Is is that what's thwarting that which is in our national interest? Makes sense to me. Yes, I believe that. I believe that 100. percent And here's the other thing: there's more than there's more than those Silicon Valley and the you know and the Chamber of Commerce and so forth. There's uh, I think our president. I think there's I think the Chinese. Initially, thought it was cheaper to buy individuals than buy, you know, populations, and uh, and they did it successfully. And so I think that uh, we got a lot of people. I mean, even the the sports sports people, you know, who are like uh, pro China, even in the face of the you know the the what they're doing with the Uyghurs and with the Kazakhs and so forth, they could give. And, and, and the Chinese don't even really try to hide it. You know, they're like, hey, look. Americans are so money grubbing; they don't care, you know. And uh, 
that that's where I think where we're at right now. They they don't believe you know that uh, we have the moral fiber to pass up a cheap buck. Well, you know, and and we don't and because so that, and this is this no. is this is a great example because Nike has a has that whole you know um, social media not social uh, social consciousness campaign with Colin Kaepernick right right big big billboards yeah, right. of him in cities stand for something even if it costs you everything and then <laughs> and then you see them in china right where people are making statements about china and the nba goes absolutely silent nike goes absolutely silent but if the same shit were to, happens in the united right. states or anything close to it they go out they go batshit crazy and you just look at that and, right. and and the media, nobody says shit, right? Nobody says shit. And so now this guy yep. that you're talking about, his minority owner for the Golden State Warriors, says nobody cares. Nobody cares. And um, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's an op-ed. Our country has never been in greater peril. Well, again, you have the media looks at this, this double standard, and because it's all the same side, they're not taking on Nike, right? They don't want to get sideways, so you know, so they're not going to make it a big deal, and they don't. Well, what do, about our universities, our, oh, our, our, our pillars of truth? Who, How, oh, I just oh, saw I'm somebody. Sorry. I just saw somebody wrote. Did did I get that from one of you guys? Or did, when you sent it, it's an article about losing our. Or I think it was in the Wall Street Journal about about how we lost our universities and what is the ratio of. Um, conservative to liberal educators across the no, country. I, I don't know. If I was you, referring I know. to the ratio of professors arrested by the FBI for not declaring their taxes and spying on China. Johns Hopkins had a couple. Princeton had one. Harvard, MIT. I mean, they've been the, the, the FBI spent a couple of years doing nothing but busting these professors that are that are attached to China, doing research and whatnot, and and basically getting. And you know, it's got to be a great. And you know, it has to be egregious because the FBI, the FBI's know they're corrupt themselves. They're <laughs> as bad as they get, man. They suck. Yeah, they, they know, still... Like, they're slasting <laughs> the attack of the other synagogue. You know, they, they, and they always have been since the get-go. I, mean, I could do a thesis right now off the cuff about how corrupt they've been since 1930. These two were fired up today because the story that's coming out of Dallas is that the synagogue, um, the way that the people that were being held in the synagogue, the hostages, the rabbi, and 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 right. I, I think they were all parishioners. I don't know if you call members of the synagogue parishioners, but if you were, temple, a, if you were a Catholic, that's what we call them. Um, they got out on their own. Is the yeah. story that's now yeah. coming out, but the that's not what the chair. FBI. The FBI didn't hit the dude say with that. the chair. <laughs> oh, no. oh no 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 yeah yeah yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Go what. back in. Wait, don't come out yet. We haven't done this. Get back in there. What the hell? <laughs> um, no, and and you know, if, if you listen to the interview with the rabbi, he said, you know, we got um, hostage situation training. We had yeah. people come in and train us, and so, and you know, so you see the private the private market adjusting for it, and uh, right. but you know, again, I'm not so, I'm not as anti FBI as you two, um, so I would say I'm an FBI moderate. But I will tell you this: when that happens, 
and they don't walk out to a press conference and say, I want to congratulate the rabbi. That guy's a hero. He acted on his right. own and he freed everybody. When the FBI doesn't say that and they say, you know, every we've got everybody out and blah, blah, blah. That, that just looks right. it, 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 it shitty. It looks shitty. That was the word I was searching for. Hey, let me tell you a story. When uh, when Will was uh, just got back from Egypt, and I was just done with Pittsburgh, um, I went over to his house, and he had this friend. Remember her, Will? She was a secretary for the FBI in Boston. And she said, you should read this. I'm talking about how great the FBI was and blah, blah, blah. And she, she says, you should read this book called... Um, 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 uh, was the one they made the movie out of with Johnny Depp years later, but uh, Johnny Brass. Remember her, Will? Remember her? Oh yeah, it was yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was about um, uh, Whitey Bulger, Black Mass. Black Mass is the name of the book. She said you should read this book, and man, you read that book. <laughs> I'm starting to think the FBI sucks, man. And then the more I look into it, I'm like uncovering more and more suckisms of the FBI all the way back to when they first got guns, you know, and how they fucked up left, right, and center all the time. The only thing that was consistent, number one, they forced cops to help them and then take credit for all the shit the cops do. And number two, whenever they shoot somebody that's wrong, they they'll, they'll, they pin it on the people they shot. And number three, the, they'll, uh, they frame people who they think it could go over pretty good that they were guilty, even if they weren't. That's their fucking M.O., man. They suck. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. Wow. There's more of that than there is anything else. There's more. I'm not kidding. Wow. I hate to say it about the fucking FBI. Ephraim Zimbrils Jr. There's, there's what's his name? Um, um, Donnie Brasco, a.k.a. Joe Pistone. He was a hero. There's individual heroes, but they're in a, it's a fucking mess of no. bureaucratic... Now, so, so I'm down yes, there at SOTG on, on, in, in uh, Lejeune, and we have the New York City FBI SWAT team down for training. But they gave me a nice T-shirt. It said FBI SWAT. Had a big apple on it, right? So I go to jump school, and I'm down there in, in the Buckhead wearing my black polo with the FBI SWAT. And the girls kept on coming up. Are you in the FBI? I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm in the Marine Corps. They just gave me this, like, oh, and they just walk off. But they were interested if I'd been in the FBI. I never knew that about being in the FBI until I happened to wear that shirt. I never wore that shirt again, by the way. I'm not into that. But, yeah, nobody that's wanted to talk to Marine, though. That's nobody right, wanted to talk on, to Marine. Let, let me salvage this thing. What are, you, <laughs> what are you reading, Will? I finished our first Civil War by H.W. Brands. And it's it's really a good book. Um, but I thought it was going to be much more about the Loyalists' presence during the time of the Revolution. And that's really only anecdotal in it. It's really just a, a different kind of a history of the Revolutionary War. Um, focuses on Franklin, Washington. Um, it's a good book because he's a great writer. And then I just started reading a book called False Alarm. It's uh, written by Bjorn Lomborg, L-O-M-B-O-R-G. If you read the Wall Street Journal... He's got editorials in there every month or so. And uh, the subtitle is uh, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. So this guy is, uh, 
he's a a climate change true believer that has sort of realized that the wackos in the climate change movement have actually hurt uh, the ability for anyone to do anything if they think climate change is really going to have this huge impact. And so um, his editorials are better than the book, to be honest with you. I just started reading the book. But I've been trying to read this these kinds of things that are more truly science-based and parse the data about what's going on out there. So that's what I've been reading. Got it. Timmy, what have you been reading? Like wolves on the fold. I, I had an audible credit left, and that was the only one of the two that was an audible. But now like a whole third of the book, you don't even make any sense of it because you didn't read the first one. So I'm kind of pissed at audible about that. So now I've got the paperback of the original one uh, uh, coming. But that was that was fun to listen to, man. That rule was right. That's a damn decent tale. Really well done. Wow. Well. Yeah. Who knew? Jeffrey, mm-hmm. what, Jeffrey, what are you reading? I'm reading the uh, this book by James Leeser. James Leeser. It's called uh, the uh, the Last Stand. It's about uh, the guys fighting the Indian Mutiny in uh, 1854 in England in uh, India. And it was about uh, it's about uh, the uh, the Brits had uh, like a few officers and a bunch of NCOs and a shitload of Indian troops who were both Muslim and Hindu and uh, the uh, the Russians with their the Russians always had good secret service. That, that was part of the great game, you know, the, the war between over Central Asia between Russia and uh, England. They got their guys in there to uh, to convince the Hindus that the new cartridges that they had for the 1854 Enfield was lubricated with cow fat, and the Muslim troops to believe that it was. It was uh, it was uh, lubricated with pig fat, and so um, the uh, the uh, there was a mutiny. These troops who were very loyal, Brits were like, and the Brits did not, uh, you know, they did not like say, hey, let's negotiate. Their punishment for guys who wouldn't use the rifle or who mutinied, they tie them to the front of the cannons and blow their guts all over the, the square. And uh, so it caused a mutiny, a huge mutiny. It's a close. The Brits came to loosen their, uh, their, you know, their empire. And the main guy who was the hero of this book was a guy named John Nicholson, who was an Irish guy who couldn't get a commission in the British Army. So he got commissioned in the British um, India Army Company, which is another army that they had. I don't want to go through that, all that deal. But, uh, you know, <coughs> um, actually, the name, of the, tr- the name of the book now is Follow the Drum. But um, and it was about these guys, and there's like sub characters in it, like um, like uh, uh, Lord Roberts, like Lieutenant Roberts, who became Lord Roberts, who's actually the victor of the Second Afghan War, was the second lieutenant, you know, in this area here. And uh, they talk about how this one guy shows up and he's ready to fight, and they go, "Sir, you're wearing the wrong buttons for your for this regiment. You are you are not a good you are not a good officer." immediately change and find the right button for your for your tunic and it's like meanwhile they're being overrun by these maniacal uh, you know uh, muslims and shit you know so it's uh it's very good and this guy nicholson being hero during the battle of uh of um oh geez the bottle of battle of uh delhi fighting for delhi and he took it 
and they won. And the and the and what it did, it led to the end of the British letting people buy their commands. Like you could buy a commission. Like you could like Mac as fucked up as you are, you could buy a captain's commission in the army, and there you are, right? And so Tim, who is like a lieutenant, has to just eat it, man. Because you bought your captain's commission. So it's very good, good, interesting story. A lot of blood and guts and shit like that. And I say, follow the drum by James Leaser. Buy it. It'll probably cost <laughs> 19 cents now. So, go ahead. That would have been the best thing that ever happened to Timmy. Uh, I've heard of that Nicholson guy before because I remember the name. John Nicholson. Nicholson. Yeah, I've read about yes, him before in other man. books. Yeah. Yeah. East Bay Indian Company guy. Hi, right, boys. First of all, there, appreci- there's actually a sect of the Sikhs who who, who worship the guy because he's such a badass. Wow. Wow. That's not that e- that's not easy to do. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> all right. Well, Will, welcome home. And uh, men, thank you uh, very very much for the visit. Uh, interesting week, and obviously, we'll see what happens uh, in uh, in Europe. Uh, what uh, what what uh, Mr. Putin will do, and then what. Uh, the response will be for, and you know, the big question is, and I mean, one of the strategic things that people watch for is, you know, one of the things with actually the situation that Will described, United States embargoes financially, Russia, it has an impact on Western Europe that cleaves Europe from the United States, right? Putin makes a deal with Europe and, you know, and essentially compromises NATO. And which is would be in, you know, certainly something that he's he's he has what dreams about, and so it'll be very interesting. Um, so we'll uh, we'll obviously keep an eye on it. So, boys, thank you very much. Have a good night. All right, brother. Thank you, Mac. Yep. That will do it. Thank you very much for listening to a Friday edition of the Mensa Brothers. You know, I I don't know. All three stories um, are a bit frustrating, as I think you heard them say. Um, Certainly the president's press conference. Now, we recorded that on Wednesday night. And uh, on Thursday, the president had to clarify his remarks because he fucked them all up in the, in during the press conference. Uh, and again, it's just stunning to watch that level of incompetence. You know, but again, I, Joe Biden's always been that guy. There's a reason, you know, that he has the nickname the gaff machine. And now you're watching that on a... You know, in a in a realm that we shouldn't see it. Um, yeah, and and again, you know, the commandant's got a problem with the the alumni, the senior alumni, the generals of the Marine Corps, retired generals of the Marine Corps. And so, when you see an uh, you know an article, you know, like the one that was written in War on the Rocks, you know, you're just begging for somebody to kind of have the footnotes and and start asking him hard questions but I, but again my sense is he wouldn't do that interview if that's you know I, I don't know I would imagine that um, the guy interviewing him was asked to submit the questions because they'd like to do that 
I, I don't do that. I mean, General Neller came on, I don't know how, three times? I never submitted the questions to them. I told them what we were going to talk about. I didn't submit the questions, though. Uh, much to his credit. Um, and then the whole thing with national power in the Pacific. You know, I don't know if Will's right or not, but it's the most plausible explanation that I've heard. Powerful forces in the United States do not want to see the, the United States take on that kind of adversarial economic stance because it doesn't make any sense why we don't have why the Philippines don't have a sweetheart deal to sell into the United States and our allies because they're vital to America's strategic interest and the rules-based order yet we don't have shit so and again and you don't even read anything about us negotiating shit so I don't know uh, three topics maybe I should start Making sure I mix in a happy one. Yeah, I'll write that memo. Anyway, have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. I'm Mike McNamara, this is All Marine Radio. If I can help you help somebody, and I did a bunch of it today, um, let me know. I'd be happy to. On that note, have a great weekend. I'm out.